0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, one of the hosts of the channel, and each week I try to pick a book that I find particularly interesting, and I interview the author of that book, and this week I'm very pleased to say we have Adi Gordon on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, Toward Nationalism's End, an intellectual biography of Hans Kohn. I read Hans Kohn in graduate school with great fascination. I was a Russianist at the time, and he wrote a famous book on pan slavism which I read, and he seemed to be a brilliant guy. It was a big, thick book. It had tons of footnotes, and he seemed to be able to read uh, every European language, and maybe some non-European ones. I don't know, but I found him terribly impressive. And then when I saw that Adi had written his biography, I said, you know, I have to read this. So I contacted Adi and said, I'd like to interview you, which is what I'm doing now. Adi, welcome to the show. Hi, Marshall. Um, Could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of history at Amherst College. I uh, I was born and raised in Israel. I studied in Jerusalem, Berlin, and Madison, Wisconsin. And my areas of expertise are modern Jewish history and uh, European intellectual history. I'm particularly interested in German Jews and more sort of more accurately in European, in in uh, Central European intellectuals. Um, most of my work, at least so far. I looked at intersections of Central European and Jewish history and ideas and other historical arenas and and the global transformations. Uh, um, Being an Israeli had uh, or still has uh, something to do with much of my research interests, uh, questions about the the nature and uh, course of Jewish history or of Arab-Palestinian history uh, matter in a very tangible way. I was always sort of drawn uh, to those questions. So my first book, for example, dealt with uh, Jewish left-wing intellectuals who fled Nazi Germany to Palestine. The Zionist society in Palestine wanted to absorb them as newcomers, but they resisted and sort of clung (laughs) to their German cultural identity and hence sort of experienced life in the promised land as sort of a bitter exile. And my, my second book, dealt with interwar Zionists who rejected the idea of a Jewish uh, nation-state and advocated instead by nationalism or what we nowadays call um, the one-state solution so I think for many people nowadays um, you know such stories would make little sense how you know how can Zionists be against the Jewish uh, state or how can Jews from Hitler's Germany reject design society which sort of seeks to absorb them, but those exactly for me are the markers of uh, What history can tell and how it allows us to sort of see other possibilities So so that's who I am and the kind of work I do.
0: Well, I mean that's a great answer because one of the things I particularly enjoy about studying history is trying to wrap my mind around Ideas that historical figures found very easy to put together, but mm-hmm. I can't at all <laughs> and you just mentioned a couple of them yeah, and I think Cohn's life between us, right. yeah, I, th- I think Cohn's life sort of nicely encapsulates m- much of what you're talking about because to us he's a very strange figure because he is able to unite ideas that again for us just do not go together at all so mm-hmm. um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, What? why, I mean you've kind of answered this question, but why did you write a biography of Hans Cohn? So you
1: know I first encountered Cohn not as you know the pioneer uh, of the uh, study of nationalism, which he is, not as a historian of nationalism, but actually for his break with Zionism. Uh, many, many, many years ago, I considered writing a dissertation um, sort of as a collective biography of Central European intellectuals who, so to speak, moved through the Zionist movement, that is, say, people who were... Zionists for a while and then uh, broke with it or just lost interest. And potentially it could also include intellectuals who who lived in the Zionist society in Palestine in the 30s and 40s, but never actually became Zionist and then moved on. And, uh, you know, the list of prominent ex-Zionists, intellectuals is astonishing i mean, it's really long it includes names like nathan bierenbaum Jakob de Hahn, arthur mm-hmm. köstler arnold Feig, hannah Arendt, in a way leon ross and quite a few others and what i was thinking was sort of a certain common thread in what brought them to this break with zionism or something common in the experience of this break or at least um, something common in the later impact but ultimately I, I abandoned the project you know I felt that uh, this is too disjointed uh, for a, for a dissertation but I did keep Hans Kohn um, because you know the more I learned about Kohn uh, the more he fascinated me and actually sort of confused me the pieces uh, of his of his life and his career it just didn't seem to add up you know as a, as a scholar of, of nationalism Con defined uh, nationalism as sort of as a modern contract, contract, sorry, construct. Um, but in his Zionist writings, the nation was not a construct. it was a self-evident reality, uh, sort of uh, a link grounded, if you will, in the blood to antiquity. Uh, or as a scholar of uh, of nationalism, he he famously distinguished between the, the benign civic nationalism and the malignant ethnic nationalism. But if you look at his Zionist writing, it clearly indicates that he was actually drawn precisely to this negative type of nationalism, to ethnic uh, nationalism, to nationalism of uh, blood uh, and soil, or at least the myth uh, of blood and soil. And then I continued reading, and there were more and more things that just did not add up. You know, I, there was an impressive career as a pacifist, but also a career as a cold warrior, um, um, very serious about revolutionary socialism at one stage of his life, but then, um, you know, very close to the Austrian, uh, school of economics, um, uh, in a, in a, in a later stage. Uh, at one point he sort of, uh, vilifies, um, uh, America, the U.S., and another stage he idealizes. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in other words, I saw a series of dramatic ideological conversions at the heart of Kant's biography, which both informed and were informed um, by his evolving theory of, of nationalism. Yeah. So interestingly, um, you know, whatever political stance con presented at a given time, he always did so as you know as the great authority on nationalism. And, and his <laughs> yeah. biography, I think, that uh, demonstrates how virtually all political ideologies of the 20th century theorized nationalism in order to legitimize themselves, legitimize uh, their claims. And I, I would like to say also that there's a, yet another thing that we learn from those ideological conversions, with Co- from Kahn's uh, ideological conversions. I, I came to see in him sort of a lifelong struggle with nationalism, which he tried to tame by analyzing it, by framing nationalism, by defining it, by giving the theory. And the catastrophes of the 20th century, which surprised him, like all others, again and again, um, repeatedly shattered his worldview and forced him to re-theorize nationalism. But I guess the point is that his is not a story of a man who, with each crisis, comes as it were closer to a fuller understanding of what nationalism is, its history, its future. Rather, Kohn's story is a story of non-arrival. You know, as a, as, a, as a very old man, regardless of what his published work proclaimed, Kohn as much doubt and confusion about the future of nationalism and about his own political allegiances um, as he did as a, as a young adult. So Kahn's non-arrival, uh, however, I think is it's important because it's inherent to the questions raised by nationalism, whose context, impact, and historical context is ever-changing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so I, I, I began uh, looking into Kahn as, as, uh, as through his break with Zionism, but what emerged was a was an entirely different book, and apart from being sort of a book which is also about Jewish history, Zionist history, or about intellectuals in politics, it became, I think, first and foremost, a book about nationalism, you know, studying a man who very prominently formulated very different theories about nationalism at different times. This is a book about the changing perspective on nationalism. I think it provides sort of historical perspective on how nationalism is experienced and understood. And in this regard, it allows us to sort of critically reflect on how we understand nationalism, how we understand the essence of nationalism, the history of nationalism, uh, and its
0: future. Mm -hmm. that's it in a nutshell. Well, that was a good nutshell. And I, I think I said this to you in an email. One of the things that makes Cohen and makes your book really good, one of the things that makes Cohen really interesting is he was the rare kind of intellectual who was willing to change his mind. And he did it a lot. Mm-hmm. He, he, he was not willing simply to say okay i have discovered the truth here it is with a capital t and i'm going to stick with it no matter what because he he doesn't do that at all <laughs> when he's baffled he more or less says so and changes his mind that's
1: true you, that... sorry go ahead i want to say Marshall, that you know the interesting thing is you have quite a few ideological converts uh in you know in the history books but they they appear to come in different types there are the ones who are um Sort of uh, the bridge bur- um, burners like uh-huh. you know Arthur Kirster who pride themselves on saying you know I am totally different. I see it entirely differently. I you know I used to be um, a communist and I'm i an anti-communist.
0: Yeah, that would call- be the kind of conversion experience that they have,
1: right? Right. <laughs> yeah. and there, there's a certain pride <laughs> in it. With Korn, it's a bit different. I think he changes all the time, but continually he claims you know as I said before. So and so, like he doesn't proclaim his uh, yeah. ideological conversions, but a uh, conversion, but rather present himself as a overall um, consistent uh, thinker. So I, in a way, in order to analyze him, I really had to read him
0: against his own grain. Yeah, yeah. No, I see. I see just what you mean. I do. Well, let's get into his life. Um, he was. Um, born and raised in Prague. This is a fascinating part of the book because on the one hand, I was amazed how uh, uh, it, how assimilated the Jews of Prague were, it, but, but not in the way we usually think about it, that he was thinking like a Habsburg. So can, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, so I think the Habsburg setting of his childhood or the Prague uh, Habsburg Prague setting of his childhood is sort of formative, at least if we think of, it, of his biography as a biography of the scholar of, of nationalism, in, uh, in two ways. One is um, just the uh, the fact that he grew up in a multinational, multi-ethnic um, city where Jews, Germans, Czechs, still uh, lived side by side. And that was experienced in uh, at least two ways. One is the you know the omnipresence of the national conflict between um, German nationalists and Czech nationalists um, um, is that um, he at least later in his life came to be very critical of, and I, I, I would claim that also in a, a younger age was in equal measures both uh, impressed by it and and, um, um, and and not oppressed at all. So that, that is the one context. Um, and I think you know uh, if you if we situate Khan's childhood or begin the trajectory of his life. Um, As a score of nationalism from this point, it's not only the conflict, but also the various Habsburg plans um, for uh, dealing with it, the different architectures, if you will, political architectures um, that were presented at the time. So one that was very formative um, was uh, the concept of nationalism of the um, Austro-Marxists, who basically saw... um, uh, The Habsburg monarchy transformed into a truly multinational um, federation, um, and also saw the idea of um, extraterritorial autonomy, national autonomy, in a way offering um, a path for political modernity which is dramatically different than the nation-state. But, you know, Korn at the time was not really thinking those terms, so that's just things that uh, he was exposed to. Now, there's another dimension of his uh, Habsburg Prague Childhood that you alluded to uh, in your question, that's namely of uh, his Jewishness. So, um, as you mentioned, it was, um, uh, in his terms, a highly assimilated uh, Jewish household that he uh, was um, born in and raised in, um, where, you know, Jewishness was a sort of a social reality, uh the friends and the colleagues uh and many of the neighbors were were jewish but there was nothing sort of um i would say positive um about um the in, uh, there was no positively defined jewishness or hardly any uh positively defined jewishness in his uh setting that is to say he did not receive any um jewish education had virtually uh no um um Jewish uh, uh, knowledge, as uh, you know, in, in middle school or even um, high school. Nor did he suffer from anti-Semitism in a very uh, clear way. And so, um, what we have on the whole is is very minimal, almost insignificant, uh, Jewishness, which um, is in a way the starting point that brings us to a next stage in his life, still in in uh, pre-war uh, Habsburg Prague. Uh, in the summer of 1908, when he uh, suddenly becomes a Zionist, uh, suddenly he joins um, the um, Zionist Student Association, Bonkorva. He is 17 at the time. Uh, and this sort of became his world for, for the next years. Um, so the interesting thing is, like, you know, if we mentioned that, that Jewishness, or his Jewishness uh, at the time was uh, virtually insignificant. That project was, as it were, to turn it precisely to something significant indeed in their life. And there's a, sort of a, an element of a generational rebellion in this in this regard um, uh-huh. uh, against the Jewish worldview of the parents' um, uh, generation. Um, so as as uh, members of the of, um, uh, um, Zionist uh, Student Association, the, the main drive underlining uh, that Zionism was uh, a quest for authentic identities. We were born out of a sense that the Jewish identity was either inauthentic or perceived as inauthentic. Um, and now, Konov and, and his friends uh, presented their Jewishness first of and foremost as, as nationality. Uh, comparable to that of the Czechs uh, and the Germans in many regards. And at the same time, uh, he and his friends were especially fascinated by the idea of a nationality grounded in blood and in soil and in quite a few other um, um, benchmarks or or, uh, or hallmarks of uh, uh ostensible hallmarks of, of uh, bona fide uh, nationalism, that is to say a national language, national territory, shared national uh, history. That's very interesting in, in multiple ways. First of all, uh, and I don't want to uh, mention this too early, he will change his mind dramatically regarding this. Uh, but second of all, he and his friends knew from the get-go um, that this concept of nationalism is imported from without and does not really apply or fit neatly uh the reality uh of of uh of um, the Jews in that they knew around them
0: uh, yeah i mean i was i was going to mention this exactly if i could just break in for a second because his nationalism is i'm trying to think of the right word for it but it's it's particularly idealistic in the sense that it is not rooted in any uh, scriptural tradition. Um, this is a guy that knew nothing about Judaism per se, um, and and it is it, it's not really even it's not really even reflected in his experience because he knew there were lots of kinds of assimilated Jews and unassimilated mm-hmm. Jews. So there doesn't seem to be anything holding. There's not even a common language community, you know, to sort of talk about one of the benchmarks is that. You know, Jews were speaking lots of different languages. They were scattered all over Europe and other places. So this was a, a really very notional kind of nation. <laughs> it, yeah. it was just and, a nation of the mind, you know.
1: No, in, in many ways, yes, indeed. I mean, uh, one thing, of course, is um, that, you know, we tend to imagine nationalism as a movement of self-affirmation. We just want that which we are to continue um, and and um, and uh, yeah. be perpetuated and, and uh, but that is not the case for Zionism, you know, largely, but particularly to that kind of Zionism which sort of imagined itself a new. Um, there's an interesting process of self-exotization, self-orientalization, um, and I think precisely because uh, this process takes a lip uh, of not only faith, but so as much as uh, it's an it's an act of, of imagination. Uh, yeah, the fact it, it's that very they well have yeah. uh, very limited Jewish knowledge actually was uh, proved to be very fruitful and very uh, effective. <laughs> they were, they, you know, they it, the, their project was to go to Jewish history and make it their own, uh, and in a way they were freer to do so because it was it was more radical. Right. There was not adorcism. Right. It was not uh, that which their parents did, uh, but uh, there was something almost yeah. subversive, if you will. Yeah.
0: About no, I, I, see, I see just what you mean. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's like they were trying to create the new Jewish man, the sort of the equivalent of the new socialist man. And they, they didn't really have a great idea what it was going to be like. And it was just somehow going to appear in a weirdly romantic kind of evolutionary way. I, I mean, I find it very, I just find it very fascinating because I, I mean, it's very foreign to, it's, it, you know, to, to draw a weird analogy, it's a little bit like thinking about being an American. Like, what exactly <laughs> is that? Because there's so many kinds of Americans. And, you know, people talk about American nationalism. And I was like, like what could that possibly be? <laughs> right. we, we're just so different. And, and Eastern European Jewry, or Central European Jewry, was extraordinarily diverse at the time. Like,
1: yeah, you know, you
0: know
1: the, the fact that this is a nationalism grounded not on demographic, political, linguistic uh, reality, but it's on, on its negation, turn it to... Um, um, uh, turn Zion, if you will, into a, a perfect ideal, that in a way, yeah. looking from the whole span of his life, could never be achieved, right? The, the moment yeah. you, you try to fulfill and to realize that you are bound, you will be disillusioned because it's so... Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. um uh, divorced from reality and actually defined and imagined uh in negation um uh to it now I, w- right. I would like to qualify it a little bit you know it's true that they were drawn to those ideas of um of uh, blood and uh, national blood national soil national language but there was actually an ambivalence Throughout. And that was for me one of the most interesting and confusing parts of writing um, the book um, because you do want to have a sort of a clearer uh, sense of what, you know, how did they, at that, if you will, embryonic stage, theorize nationalism? How did they understand it? And I came to the conclusion that throughout, they are both, you know, cognitively they know it doesn't apply Um, and they even know that it's a bit dangerous. And in a way, this is why they're drawn to it. Um, But at the very same time, the appeal is so great. uh, And it's constantly there. Uh, So, you know, in in the the chapter of the pre-war year, you can see quite a few um, essays that they write, because that's what those dionists do at the time. They primarily write (laughs) write in German um, uh, about the blood, the mystique of the blood, the importance of the blood, the idea of a primordial trait, which are beyond, you know, uh, one's um, um, decisions, and even beyond uh, our uh, awareness. It's some sort of subconsciously, and uh, there it's sort of an I D that uh, that uh, attracts them, attracted them in a great way. And but those in those very issues, the very next stage that would write against racism. So how come? Race is bad and blood is good. It's, uh, it's, it's something that they have to struggle with, and with the same applies <laughs> yeah. of land and
0: territory. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's very fraught. So let, let's move forward a little bit in his life. And so he has an unexpected turn of events. He ends up, if I recall correctly, um, captured by Russians he in, in World War One. Right. I mean, how, how does he get there?
1: Yes. So World War One. First of all, you know, World War One really changed his life. It like, like changed many of the people of his generation, which is the generation of 1914, the generation of yeah. of, um, of the war. Um, and in a bit, I will say in what way he changed it, but uh, there's just a progression of, uh, of, of events. Um, when the war broke out, he actually saw in it a great opportunity. He was... Um, I'm not exaggerating, enthusiastic about the war, the possibilities that he ostensibly opened, uh, and he saw it in many ways as a Jewish war of liberation. He wrote those poems and has, um, somewhat jingoistic, um, uh, letters from the time in which he um, uh, described uh, how the war would revolutionize the Jewish uh, world and he was not alone uh, in this sense there were quite a few um, um, Jews of that generation throughout Europe in a way throughout the world who uh, uh, facing the dilemma of of, um, of uh, the outbreak of World War I um, conceptualized scenarios in which this is this actually could be a blessing in disguise um, uh, for the Jews, or so they hoped. So one of the classic ideas was the liberation of the Jews of the Romanov Empire, of the Tsarist pogromist yoke, uh, as they they called it at the time. Um, And uh, so he volunteered. Not only did he volunteer, he went to officer, uh, he was an officer cadet in an officer's school. Um, And after sort of long training, he went to the front, volunteered to the front in um, March of 1915, and I'm assuming uh, I read his uh, notes very carefully. I'm assuming that the first time that he saw battle was also the, the the day and the moment that he was captured by the Russians, and he was captured by the Russians. Um, I, so all throughout the war and actually beyond it. So he was, uh, he was captured, as mentioned, uh, in, um, in uh, March of 1915, but remained a prisoner of war until the end of the war and then was trapped in the Russian um, Civil War um, and could not return home until 1920. And it's not a very exceptional case that happened to quite a few prisoners of war in the, in the context of the Russian Civil War. Um, As a POW in the Russian Far East, he witnessed for the very first time colonialism, and it left a very deep uh, impact on him. And it it became evident to him that a colonial setting gives nationalism an entirely different meaning, one that uh, he would soon reflect on in his writings about Zionism and nationalism in general. Um, But uh, a few other things happened during this. Uh, this time but also him. So first and foremost, he, he witnesses uh, the collapse of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, his own country is integrating into its national component. So the situation is he is a prisoner of war of a country that no longer exists in a <laughs> war that already ended. Um, and uh, another thing that emerges is this: uh, the rise of the uh, um of the nation state model, and of course, definitely applies first and foremost uh, to uh, what used to be the Austro Hungarian Empire when the uh, national components now demand uh, a nation state each. Um, in his, those years of the POW, it was then that Kohn actually wrote his first systematic studies of nationalism, which already presented sort of an interesting um, uh, dichotomy of sorts between two types of nationalism. At the time, he distinguishes between true nationalism, which is essentially uh, spiritual self-affirmation, and what he calls the objectionable ideology of the nation-state on the other. right. So what we can see here is someone who's uh, seeing the impact of nationalism on a continental uh, scale and tries to contain it by... Defining what nationalism is in a slightly different manner. So, it, uh, from here on out, for quite a few years, he has this idea of um, political nationalism and cultural nationalism on the other. Right? This idea of cultural self-affirmation as the true um, um, face of um, of nationalism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I I can say a few more a few more things about what else he does um in the in those um, um years, but maybe more importantly uh he ri- see those years as the most decisive years of his life
0: you know, mm-hmm.
1: that they, mm-hmm. they politicized him, so if you think about his Zionism earlier on, his nationalism earlier on, entirely not addressing any questions of international relations, the state you know things along those lines, but it was sort of an inward looking um not only cultural, but actually sort of spiritual, um, um, nationalism focused on the dilemmas of the individual. Um, um, so now his national, he is politicized. His nationalism is politicized. He understands, he thinks about nationalism in entirely, um, a different context. The idea of a socialist revolution, it raises, and especially the the, the early Soviet nationalities policies, um, Pose a major challenge uh, for him, and, uh, and he, uh, as we'll talk uh, pretty soon, very much admires uh, those in the earlier um, uh, stages. Um, he is most—he becomes sensitized to the significance of colonialism, and most most clearly, uh, he um, becomes a staunch opponent of the nation-state model, and that pretty much defines. Uh, his uh, 1920s, the decade uh, that uh, comes thereafter.
0: Mm-hmm. So he does work. He, he essentially becomes a, a professional Zionist at this point, or something close to it, doesn't he? After his release in 19, he got he was freed in 1920. Is that right? That's 19, correct. 19, mm-hmm. 1920. But at that mm-hmm. point, he goes and works for. I don't remember the names of these organizations, but he works for international yeah, Zionist maybe. organizations. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he does. Uh, he does. I mean. I guess, the, first and foremost, I mean, he is entirely committed to Zionism as of 1908. It really was mm-hmm. his world. And it's an interesting thing, you know, if I'm staying a little bit in the in the um, years of captivity before uh, he comes back home, on a emotional level, I, I wouldn't say psychological, but on an emotional level, there's something very interesting happening, you know. He loses, uh, at the moment, that he loses his freedom, his agency he challenges all of his energies, directs all of his energies um, in two related ways. First and foremost, um, he, he uses those years uh, as years of self-education. And since it's World War I and not World War II, actually he receives um, uh, through the Red Cross uh, quite a few parcels uh, and uh, has a lot of free time on his hands. And he actually teaches himself Arabic, Persian um, uh, works on his other foreign languages. Primarily works on Russian. Reads extensively. I mean, most of his uh, letters from those time, from those years uh, relate to uh, his reading and education on multiple fields. But as mentioned, uh, also about the question of nationalism. It, it emerges gradually as the focal point, trying to understand what nationalism is. Uh, yeah, this is
0: one of the. If I could just interrupt for a second. This is what was one of the things that. Reminded me of how different the world was in World War One than it was from World War Two because oh, he really was given a lot of free time and he had books and they they didn't actually treat him that badly. It reminds me that when Lenin first got shipped into Siberian exile, the Tsarist authorities made sure that they sent his library with him. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I know. It was a different world.
1: <laughs> That's, yeah, first of all, it was very much a different world compared to World War II, where we you know yeah. how it would have ended and how briefly. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, it's also a world of various classes. So the fact that he was yeah. an officer cadet, his life uh, as a prisoner of war was very much, very different than that of the other, you know, uh, GIs. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at the time um so as said you know he directs it, all of his energies in a way sort of he escapes to the realm of the mind in his uh, studies of languages um and and uh essentially early studies of uh of nationalism, but the other part is when he uh, at this at the later stage uh, after the first russian revolution he um there's an improvement in, in uh, the conditions of the POWs, at least for a while. And he uses this new liberty um, to create somewhat of a POW college, uh, and an Zionist POW college. So all that knowledge that he absorbed and all, all those patterns of, you know, uh, intellectual dispute that uh, he has known uh, from his um, years as a Zionist in Prague, he... Um, um, now project out to his fellow POWs uh, an activity which is very much a continuation of Bar As a matter of fact, um, he publishes with them a periodical of those POWs, which is actually quite interesting and high level. Um, And the name of that periodical is From Judentum, On Judaism, which is the title of the book that he edited in 1913 for uh Bar-Kofa. So going back to your original question, already before he returned uh, home from captivity, he's very much committed to um, working uh, in the Zionist organizations and uh, reaches out to many of his um, uh, colleagues uh, asking about it. And is, uh, and indeed, when he comes back, um, he uh, serves in the First in Paris, in the Comité de Delegation Juive, which is sort of the uh, right. representative of Jewish delegations to the peace talks in in Paris, which is an interesting uh, Paris uh, peace conference, and uh, uh, it's an interesting uh, case because, of course, that also relates to the vision of a world of nation states at in the Wilsonian um, moment. But um, those Jewish representatives are the ones who were. Uh, most central in um, advocating minority rights, right, uh-huh. which is in a way says, is the, is the backyard of the world of, um, of um, nation-state, a sort of a corrective to the world of the nation-state. However, for various reasons, I would not go into it. He does not identify with this institution at all uh, for uh, what he sees as half measures. Then he continues um, uh, to London, where he becomes the... Um, head of the Department of Propaganda of Karen Assad, which is sort of the a, a, a Zionist organization's main uh, fundraising, if you will, um, uh, institution, uh, to, to put it bluntly. It's not an accurate uh, um, definition. And in this capacity, he, he uh, stays uh, for, essentially until his break uh, from Zionism. There is an interesting... Um, tension in the 1920s between his position as a salaried bureaucrat of the Zionist organization and his very radical statement against Zionist policy, right? There's an interesting tension over there.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Sure, and that already sort of brings us clearly, neatly to the, his post-captivity, the return uh, to Europe, and then uh, his move um, uh, to Palestine. So in the 1920s, largely uh, he, And he goes to
0: Palestine in 19, 1925, is that right? Yeah, so basically some time, yeah.
1: So if I chart the map, he returned okay. from Russian captivity uh, in 1920, stays for uh, uh, about a year in Paris, then moves um um in twenty one or twenty two to um uh to London where he says until nineteen twenty five when he moves to Palestine together with the office w- in which he serves so yeah, he in, right. in which he um, um moves um to palestine um so he comes as as mentioned as a salary um functionary Zionist functionary the, the Zionist bureaucrats but he does a few other things. Uh, parallel to that, and those are actually more dominant and more crucial in framing um, uh, his career, or actually careers in the plural, um, in um, in the uh, 1920s um, and even early 30s. So he um, publishes quite extensively on Jewish thoughts. Uh, he is um, Middle East correspondent for German-speaking um, Articles uh, uh, like the Deutsche Zeitung and Frankfurter Zeitung. Um, he, more importantly, um, is an inspiring scholar of the modern Middle East or the modern East, and particularly of uh, nationalism in the Middle East. And he is also um, uh, co founder of Binational Zionism. So, th- all of those uh, arenas are um, worthy of uh, elaboration. Uh, One thing that they all have in common is that they are all are informed by his negation of um, the nation state model. Um, So let me maybe focus on, uh, first and foremost, about his binational Zionism.
0: Uh, Can I I ask a question before you do? Mm -hmm. Binational Zionism. And this is just a curiosity. and I, I just am trying to imagine what it must have been like to be Hans Kohn in Palestine in 1926. What language did he speak to people in? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to think because he must have been surrounded by some Zionists who actually were religious as well, and he must have also been surrounded by people who, I, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. Jews who had been yeah. in Palestine forever. <laughs> yeah, no. and, and it must must have been a crazy scene.
1: <laughs> so, lucky for Hans Korn, he was a polyglot. He knew quite a few languages. He actually lectured in Hebrew um, when in Palestine. He, really? he lectured in Russian when in Russian. <laughs> activities. He published uh, in French and, of course, German and, and, and a good command of, of, uh, of Czech. Wow. Um, yeah. But the most important language in his life until, um, uh, or at least I would say, from his childhood throughout his years in Palestine was German. That mm-hmm. was the language that was spoken uh, in his household. That was the language uh, that he spoke to most of his uh, interlocutors and his peers. That was the language that he um, that he published in as a scholar. Um, uh-huh. English grew also in, in significance uh, yeah, sure. in, in the Palestine years because of course uh, this all happened uh, under the British mandatory
0: rule. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just interested in the kind of cultural milieu because it sounds absolutely fascinating in its diversity So you can't imagine what it was like either.
1: It, it, it is a fascinating one you know there is a certain core of it which is certainly Central European France, Central European uh, Jews they can come from Prague or Berlin um, but if you look for example at the Binational Zionists the most dominant group among them um, are, uh, are Central European Jews or German-speaking um, uh-huh. uh, Jews, some of them friends that he had even before uh, he moved to Palestine, but that's not the whole picture, right? There they, they were also um, Eastern European Jews, Jews from the States, like Judah Magnus magnus um, yeah. and, uh, and uh, Quite a few, um, quite a few others. I guess the interesting thing is is that it's not only the small marginal group of uh, like-minded intellectuals uh, around Korn that is interesting, but I think the society, the Jewish society in Palestine, the society at the time, it's fascinating, right? you are talking about here a small immigrant society, extremely young, really young. Um, you know, so many of them are uh, young adults or even younger than that. Uh, it is the create a society and a culture and an identity for themselves um, in a different continent away from Europe and sort of imagining themselves uh, anew. And I think this definitely appealed to Cohen even after is a uh, aforementioned break um, with Zionism. This
0: is Well, I can kind of imagine it did, because in a sense, mm-hmm. what it was was nationalism as, as an idea and mm-hmm. not as an ethnicity, because these people were ethnically very different, but they were all somehow <laughs> Zionists. Yeah, so, yeah. Do you I see mean, what they, I mean? Yeah,
1: yes, I, I do, I do. I mean, they definitely came from different languages and different um, uh, backgrounds. I mean, so that that side of it was definitely very appealing for him, but of course you know he and many of his uh colleagues were increasingly um concerned about where um this uh this heads uh where this where this leads um yes. so um just to give sort of a general picture of what he um he does mm-hmm. in in the in the twenties I mentioned that he um begins to write as as a scholar not yet fully uh, as a scholar of nationalism writ large general scholar of nationalism but particularly of uh, nationalism in the middle east Um, and he writes actually with a great degree of identification Uh, and you can see how the various things sort of merge on the one hand he presents a trajectory of a future uh, historical trajectory of uh, Arab nationalism or nationalism in the Middle East, that does not necessarily point towards um, the creation of um, new nation-states, and there's always the option of some multinational um, federations. Um, and you can see how when he writes, he also writes for fellow Zionists. So there's a, it's very easy to draw parallels between the history of Zionism, which he also writes in those years, Um, and the history of Arab nationalism or Middle Eastern uh, nationalism uh, writ uh, writ large. Um, I guess there's one more field that I should mention of his activity in the 1920s, which is interesting, and I discovered um, relatively late uh, into this project, is the fact that Connor was quite central um, in international pacifism in the 1920s. And that too, uh, is related to his negation of the um, uh, nation-state model and sort of an understanding that in order for pacifism to be effective, it has to uh, not just talk about slogans, but uh, uh, but really think about international relations and have sort of a viable alternative or, or uh, a political, a broad strategy grounded in an understanding of nation-state dynamics, basically seeing. The nation states model is the cradle
0: of uh, future yeah. wars. Right. Um You did mention earlier, and I don't want to leave this portion of the conversation out. You mentioned this concept of binational Zionism. <laughs> Again, it's yeah. one of these things that yeah. that just don't go together for me very mm. well. What, what, what is that thing? So, binational
1: Zionism is um, an ideology of certain Zionists who believe that the Proper realization uh, of uh, Zionism, the creation of a Jewish uh, national home in Palestine um, or Jewish national revival, um, is uh, best realized in um, not in the creation of a uh, of, um, um, Jewish nation state in Palestine or the creation of Palestine as a Jewish nation state. <laughs> but in the creation, which are, the two are different, right? It's, it's the right, they are. the state by side of... um, But in the creation of a, some kind of a federation or a confederation uh, with complete political equality um, um, for Arabs and Jews, and I want to explain, you know, how they even come to uh, this idea. So there are multiple roots to that. Um, on the one hand, you know, we can definitely see how when Cohn and other formulated this vision of a binational Palestine, they leaned on thoughts of uh Austromarxists and other Habsburg uh, political thinkers uh and adopted and tried to apply a few of their concepts. Um it we can also see how that relates to a nationalism or to a Zionism which never saw it so the thought of itself as purely political but focused on, on a cultural revival, a national revival. Uh, was more like inward looking. Um, but I think the most crucial element and I've, this is a, uh, I've, I've grown to understand this and accept it increasingly is the realization of Korn, but not only of him, of his but also of quite a few other binationalists, that whether the Zionists wanted it or not, Zionism is um, taking place in a colonial setting and the relation between the zionist settlers and the palestinian arabs is the colon- is the relation between the colonizer and the colonized regardless mm-hmm. if zionists wanted it regardless if zionists are even aware of it and since they assumed that the age of colonialism is on its way out sooner or later building a Jewish nation states on on, um, on, such, uh, uh, on on such on such premises uh, endangers um, the uh, entire Zionist project. So the only way out for them was the idea of inter- complete political parity, um, not a state in which there is a dominant nation, one dominant nation, and another uh, group that is defined it's a factor as a minority. So in this regard, it isn't, doesn't even matter the size and the borders of that um, Jewish state. It could be as tiny as Tel Aviv, and still for them, it would be 40 and it would be um, a colonialist project. Right. So that, that is yet another important element of why they, they went there. Um, so, you know, Cohen, as far as I know, is, is the first person to advocate clearly the path of uh, of, uh, of binational Palestine. I mean, some people spoke about it in vague terms, um, but he, I think, in 1919, so before he returned from Russia, already um, um, proclaimed that once a state would be established in Palestine, it would not be a nation-state for long, but eventually it would become a multinational or binational uh, state, and we have to uh, understand it and plan our politics and our strategy accordingly. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea lived on. Um, It lived on uh, in, you know, in the 1920s, 1926, uh, 25, 26. uh, He co-founded an organization called Brit Shalom Covenant Justice, uh, which is a former organization advocating binational Zionism. Um, And there are quite a few prominent um, Zionist activists over there. some of them really important in the Zionist movement there are definitely quite a few Central European intellectuals there uh, he definitely is not um, um, the only one and um, obviously the binational Zionists do not have a, a great success uh, in changing the minds uh, of fellow um, Zionists in the in the 20s nor of convincing um, the Palestinian Arabs to uh, join them in this shared uh, um, endeavor, not even uh, in convincing the, um, the British that this is uh, a path that uh, they should uh, uh, necessarily uh, take. So largely you can see it is a story of a failure, but uh, the binational ID emerges again and again and arguably would continue to emerge again and again as long as the dynasty Arab conflict is not um, resolved. Uh, so it emerges again in the 30s and in the 40s. And there were people who even after the establishment of the state of Israel still uh, were committed um, to, um, to that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, not so for Khan as, as, as you know, and that maybe even brings us to a, 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 the next chapter in, uh, in his life. Um, yeah, and then, then he leaves Palestine, correct? Exactly, exactly. exactly why he left. So it was a slow and painful break uh, with Zionism, and he was sort of full of doubts um, as of the first half of the twenties, but increasingly in um, uh, in the late twenties um, uh, in his life in Palestine. So he experiences, you know, some of the uglier manifestation of the of the uh, of the national conflict. Um but also on an, an sort of ideological um level he loses faith. He loses faith in the feasibility of binational Zionism. He begins to think that it actually is counterproductive and rather than convincing any Zionist or Arab nationalist or British official to move towards that path, it actually serves as a fig leaf, as a propaganda um, facade um, against its will, um, basically covering up or giving a wrong wrong impression of what uh Zionist policies at the time are and, and presenting it Zionism which is more dovish than it actually was. Um, it also thought he also thought that it actually rather than convincing fellow Zionists uh, Creates greater anger and right-wing radicalization or militarist uh, uh, um, uh, radicalization against the ineffective uh, bi Um And uh, a few um, endeavors in his life in the late twenties that sort of are uh, tangled with his crisis uh, of uh, with with um, with. Uh, by National Zionism with Zionism with large. One of them, I I think, I would argue, is him writing the biography of his great Zionist uh, mentor, uh, teacher, um, uh, Mm -hmm. Martin Buber, philosopher Martin Buber. And uh, it's a biography. It begins the biography written by a disciple, but he becomes increasingly critical um, of Buber, and that sort of gives him a possibility of um of uh thinking in new and more critically about what he has done uh you know the, the, his own life so uh, in in private letters he always calls it not buber's biography but his own that is cones <laughs> yeah yeah you know, um and there's also the struggle with pacifism that he increasingly realizes that this does not mean as well is, uh, his work on um, Arab nationalism also brings him to be more critical, not so much of the Zionist, his of his fellow Zionists, but actually of um, Arab nationalism and the prospect of actually uh, having um, um, a peace, the possibility of of having a, um, uh, an actual uh, peace agreement with the, the other side, or ever appeasing. Um, um, their needs. so all of those things, um, together, um, bring him to, um, the point that he, um, he further radicalizes his, his positions. He publishes, um, uh, a few articles as a, as a German language correspondent to the Middle East about Zionism that provoked the ire of many of, um, his fellow Zionists and the fact that he's a salaried functionary of the Zionist organization, they, are, they force uh, him, uh, his dismissal. Um, but before they do that, <laughs> he does the classic move of saying, you know what, I quit. <laughs> but that is very publicly. <laughs> that is very publicly in sense, um, um, many letters, public letters, and in those days everything was in so many carbon copies. Um, so um, to uh, his superiors about um, why the gig is out, why Zionism would never work. And interestingly enough, he slams the door on Zionism, but frankly has nowhere to go. Yeah. And he so he, that happens in late 1929, uh, uh, in the immediate wake of the Palestinian Arab um, riots uh, in the summer of 1929, uh, when it becomes evident to him that Zionism could never aspire to be anything but the uh, creation of, um, of uh Jewish nation-state in Palestine, and that it has to go through an inevitable, bloody and long conflict with the Arab-Palestinian national um, uh, movement. Um, so after he makes all those proclamations, he um, now needs to go somewhere and find something to do. And is stuck in limbo um, for quite a few years, until uh, the spring of 1934. Um, when he lands in a position, or is invited to serve as a professor of history at um, Smith College,
0: uh, Northampton, right, right down the street from where I live, <laughs>
1: exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, mm. uh, that must have been quite a shock for him to show up in Western Massachusetts, sleepy Western Massachusetts, <laughs> rural school.
1: It, it was. It definitely was. You know, on on the one hand, um, the years leading up to this were nerve-wracking because he had a wife and a child that he needed to support. Uh, He was in his early 40s, had no job uh, prospect in the horizon, um, and he, at many times, doubted that he would ever get a position uh, Mm -hmm. anywhere. Now, he would have probably considered teaching also in Germany, but if you know who right. he is, it's already 1933, <clears throat> and his work as a correspondent to German uh, publications is uh, being limited, and that's sort of another drama. So at the background of him moving to Northampton to his new life uh, in uh, the New England setting, uh, and he, uh, the, the background is his break with Zionism, and the rise of, of Nazism or more broadly fascism in, in Europe, uh, the, the, increasing uh, increasing, the growing crisis, um, um, in, uh, in Europe. So, as mentioned, at the age of 43, uh, he leaves by the stands for good, uh, to become professor at Smith, um, and, um, the, the move to the U.S., as mentioned, was, uh, a coincides also with the consolidation of Nazi rule over Germany. And uh, also his academic breakthrough um, in the States uh, occurs during uh, World War II with his 1944 magnum opus, um, the idea of nationalism. Mm -hmm. So many things change over there. Uh, We can address them one by one, but maybe if I focus on his scholarship uh, and his career first.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, the best idea.
1: Um so first of all you know up until that point he was a scholarly he was primarily a scholar of uh the the modern middle east he moved to smith as a europeanist uh, and that, that very much shaped um um his work on nationalism throughout this period he becomes you know also before he left palestine uh his work was increasingly addressing Nationalism more broadly, uh, the history of nationalism more broadly, uh, but now it becomes he becomes sort of an authority in the field, and the context in which uh, he wrote uh, the change in the context is crucial. So Nazism transformed the nature and purpose of discussions about the essence of nationalism, and and uh, you know. If people in the 1920s wrote about nationalism addressing primarily the question of self-determination and things along those, li- those lines. Now the question was fascism and Nazism and the question you know that Korn's readers would ask is why did German nationalism deteriorate to Nazism mm-hmm. and whether all nationalism had a similar potential, similar propensity of becoming uh, fascism. And Korn's response uh, was his familiar distinction between ethnic and civic nationalism, which dominated his writing uh, henceforth. Uh, only civic nationalism, he would assert, retained some kind of a universal horizon, an innate propensity to always form um, federations or unions greater um, greater than uh, itself. Um I should say, as far as the theory of nationalism is concerned, you can see, if you remember, when we talked about the 1920s, he had this notion that there is, he had this dichotomy of true nationalism on the one end, which was somehow not political, was cultural self-affirmation, and then there was the idea, the political nationalism, which aspires to the creation of a nation-state. With his break with Zionism, this collapsed, this Theory collapses, and he basically thinks that the only, you know, in 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 this time, the only relevant category of nationalism is, is political in one shape or form. And precisely because nationalism is dangerous uh, or has a dangerous potential, it's important to distinguish between different kinds
0: mm-hmm. of
1: political um, uh, nationalism. And that here comes the distinction uh, between the uh, the civic uh, and ethnic um, nationalism. I should also maybe mention um, another contribution that he made to the study of nationalism roughly around that time, uh, in the the 30s, and that is um, Mm -hmm. the definition of nationalism as a modern construct. So historicizing nationalism, Mm -hmm. saying that nationalism began at a certain moment and insinuating, at least insinuating, sometimes uh, uh, saying more clearly that if it had a beginning, it would also have an end. It's a Mm -hmm. a historical phenomenon that began at some point and frame in in the modern age uh, and, and would end, he always hoped, just around the corner. And the way it would end, just to, to, uh, connect the two, uh, pieces, the distinction between the civic and the ethnic, and the idea of, um, of, uh, the, the constructed modernity of nationalism, is through civic nationalism, which would transcend itself, right? Mm-hmm. It would always create greater unions. So the greater unions could be the UN, or it could be a European integration, or what have you, but the idea is that that is the path of modernity, and what happens is that in those uh, voluntary uh, unions, the, um, also the nation states would give up some of the sovereignty in you know, order to create sort of a greater union And least. You know, the philosophical telos of this is the creating of a of a world yeah. republic, but that is the end of time. Right? Yeah. Right. Right.
0: Well, if, if I could just ask a quick question about this, you know, uh, on, on a casual reading, or mm-hmm. I, I guess after. Thinking about it a little bit, it seems to me that his civic nationalism isn't very nationalistic. you see mm-hmm. what I mean? It, it, um, and it maybe exists in one place, and that's the United States, <laughs> where, where we have this idea yeah. that we are all kind of Americans, but we're all different. The thing that holds us together is this political compact, and that kind of means we're a nation, but, you know, not really. Not like Germans or something, or <laughs> you know, Czechs, or Russians, or Chinese, you know. It, you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, I do. I do a couple of things. Mm-hmm. So first of all, you know, there's definitely a strong normative element, uh, and I yeah. would even say more moral, moralistic element uh, in his writings. <clears throat> even though he didn't necessarily say it, so, he obviously did not like nationalism. Nationalism yeah, for no, him I think he did. Was, was a threat. I mean, it's a crucial thing because you know, I uh, I've done some reading of other theoreticians and historians mm-hmm. of nationalism. And, you know, they can be very critical and say it's all constructed, but at the end of the day, they say, no, I do like it. You know, it appeals to me. I can see <laughs> how it means for, for positive things. Uh, I think for him, it's sort of the realization is that whether you want it or not, this is the world around you. And you have to harness it yeah. um, to a higher uh, end. So I think part of the meaning of the book's name is towards nationalism's end, that is to say, making nationalism not not only about the, the, the fact that nationalism has an end, a, a finite point, but rather that it could serve a higher end. And for him, I think the idea was, and in, in some regards, it's sort of similar to Marxist thoughts on capitalism. You have to let it sort of um, yeah. uh, transcend itself, um, and there's a, there's a positive and a negative way sure. of going about it, um, but he accepts it uh, largely as part of um, of uh, modernization. Now, throughout his life, he identifies the civic nationalism mm-hmm. in different places, you know, so when he just, you know, begins to think about the possibility of, uh, of civic nationalism as a, as a positive thing, you can see that in the way he idealizes the idea of nationhood in Judaism in a book that he writes in the mid-1920s called The Political Idea of, of Danism, which is all based on the Covenant. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, um, but it's not really spelled out, but it's sort of embryonically
0: uh, yeah, that's kind of like the United States without the United States. If you see what yeah, I mean, right. Jews were like so Americans really, without America. Yeah, <laughs> you no, know, covenant, I, its called the Constitution—and you know, like you—you yeah, you know, Jews—Jews yeah. Jews have you know what Moses brought down from the mountain, and that holds us all together. Yeah, I see what you're saying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, but you know, since you mentioned uh, American nationalism in the state, now so of course, in 1957, he writes a similarly idealizing book. American nationalism which yeah this
0: was my question. I was wondering what he thought about the United States and please talk so
1: about so this. This the, all the things that you've mentioned that you know that here you really have uh, nationalism <laughs> which is not defined uh, by blood and of course uh, in, uh, he integrates uh, frontier theory into it so it's also not really by soil um, but there's so many contradictions over there and I think the most important thing is to if I fast forward to the end of his life and I think this is something that I I'm lucky enough to be the first to point out he was disillusioned with that as well. And at the end, <laughs> of course during you know during the Vietnam, years, he writes very clearly as far as the Native Americans and the African
0: Americans, American nationalism was always and remained colonial. Uh, strong words. right? Well, I mean, he went to, you know he comes you know, he went to Palestine, he found uh, Jewish uh, imperialism, and then he comes to the United States and he finds European imperialism.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes oh, sense. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So that is, um, you know, I I wrote a biography
0: without a hand. He's not idea. wrong about those things.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It's interesting, right? He's yeah. He's constantly yeah. wrong about some things and right about others. Um, yeah. But what you certainly cannot see in his life is um, a set, unchanging theory of nationalism that applies throughout the few thoughts. Right.
0: Um, so but, he does, let me let me just break in and say, because we're almost out of time, but I wanted to ask sure. this question, because this is how I really learned about him, is he, he becomes, I don't want to say he's a cold warrior, but he starts to write about Russian stuff, and he seems to be very involved in this 1950s, 1960 effort to kind of understand the Soviet Union in terms of, you know, the legacy of Russian, like nationalism, is that the word? No, Russian imperial?
1: Yeah, um, no, no, nationalism, is uh, he would say nationalism is very
0: true. Uh, sorry, I didn't want. So to, how does he? How does he come to? How does he come to do these things? He knows Russian because he learned it in a prison camp, where he did a lot of reading. So, so how does he become so, involved as a cold warrior? So, first of all, I do. I I have no
1: problem calling him a cold warrior. I really think that is what he was. He becomes a cold warrior. That's a process of his, sort of uh, what I call the catastrophic Americanization. He comes. To The um, um, U.S. is initially very critical of, uh, of the U.S., but when things get really thorny and dangerous with the international crisis of the late 30s, um, he um, and a few other um, European emigres become very vocal as anti-isolationists. And they go to fellow Americans, and they are themselves are not Americans at the time, but they go right. to Americans and tell them, this is not what you know, we can do much better than this. And we have certain values. <laughs> it basically we- gives them an ideal, idealized version of American values. And when mm-hmm. America actually enters the war, that's it. That is sort of, um, uh, in many regards, uh, a harmonious moment in his life where you have a strong policy. That he feels lived up to his, uh, expectations. And he definitely believed along the line of sort of Henry Luce in the American century and, uh, in America's role in leading post-colonial national uh, movement around the world as being a force of uh, greater liberation and a sort of fraternity of equal nations that would eventually lead to the creations of those uh, greater unions. Mm-hmm. Um, He's entirely, uh, he gladly volunteers to activities uh, for um, um, the, uh, he's a founding member of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, um, goes regularly to lecture to um, Germans and Austrians uh, on behalf of, of the United States, and as we know, sponsored by the CIA. Um, and he's very much a cold warrior, works with the likes of, of uh, the young Henry Kissinger and, and a few others um, uh, uh, at the time. As far as the Soviet Union um, and the question of colonialism or imperialism, um, it is very important for him as a cold warrior at the time to uh, expose uh, what he thinks is Soviet anti colonial posturing. Um, and his claim, you know, uh, pan Slavism of course, is uh, that behind this idea of uh, fraternity of, um, of Slavic nations, there is a great German, sorry, great Russian, yep. important correction, great um, Russian um, nationalism which uh, demands to subordinate fellow Mm -hmm. um, Slavic nations. So for him, it's continental imperialism. And in this regard, he's very similar to Hannah Arendt, who writes around that time uh, about uh, the Soviet Union um, in in, in a similar fashion. So that's what brings him over there. And I don't think he is... um, I mean, there is a Cold War idealism in him, but I don't think that he's ever... um, It's not that there's no naivety in in him. I I don't think he ever does it cynically. So I think he really does believe in the the, um, uh, promise uh, of the U.S. and of NATO. For him, the creation of NATO is one step towards that kind of um, uh, greater um, unions and the
0: limitation of of, Mm -hmm. uh, national sovereignty. Um, But if we could just, you know, to, to sum up for a second his life, if I could try to put a capstone on this, because we're almost out of time, and I want to ask you one more question. He seems like the kind of person who uh, thinks very deeply about things, comes to conclusion, a very affirmative one, this is the way things are, and then almost through lived experience, whatever conclusion he reaches, uh, gets kind of datched, dashed upon the rocks of reality and he comes, he comes to reject it. I mean, like his business with the United States is so typical because there it is. He found his place that was kind of post-national, it was civic nationalism, right? And it was anti-colonial. These are two things he just loves, right? And here he is, he's found it, his great cause, he makes good. And then the Vietnam War, (laughs) Yeah. like, and he can't ignore it. There it is. America acting like a nation, and not only that, an imperialist one. (laughs) Right, but isn't that life and history, right? That's what I say. He's a very, very, I I really admire him in that way. You know, he's not willing to just say, oh, this is an aberration or something, you know, and my theory is still correct. He's just like, well, that's that. (laughs) Hans Korn is a brilliant thinker who made
1: multiple, maybe all the possible mistakes in a single lifetime. <laughs> That's a great um, thing. <laughs>
0: and,
1: and, and I think, you know, um, maybe this, more than anything else, is what we can learn from him. Uh, also, maybe for, first and foremost, not about life in general and yeah. you know political decisions uh, uh, or things of that nature, but about nationalism.
0: Mm-hmm. How
1: nationalism changes and the essence of context of nationalism changes. So the uh, need to Theorized nationalism is
0: understandable and is important and is crucial and it is it is evolving you know because even in my own lifetime, suddenly I read in the press about this thing in the United States called white nationalism, right and I never heard of such a thing in my whole life it's just all of a sudden it appeared out of nowhere that there was this thing, and I just it never occurred to me that there was such a thing i don 't think there really was, but it 's kind of been inven- I don't, you're like seeing it be invented right before your eyes. It's like watching an idea form in your head. You're like, there it is. And I know like, it's astounding I to me. I, I mean, I read these things all the time in the paper and I said, I mean, I'm not a young man anymore, but I, I oh, guess that's are. one of the gifts of being not a young man is that you get to see these things happen. But like the idea of white American nationalism, I just don't, it would have been inconceivable to me 20 years ago that there was such a thing.
1: No, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely true uh, and you know um, the uh, book was long enough in the making that it was written um, when nationalism played a slightly different um, role in American life or in the life uh, of, of the West but of course you know in the last couple of years um, there's sort of um, uh, clear redefinition of um, of, um, of of uh, the significance of nationalism in our life and the yeah, way I think, I think many of is. us I
0: think, think, think right. nationalism's
1: future, right? I yeah. think um, many of, you know, Gen X, of the people of the, the generations, either Gen X or baby boomers would definitely think that the general political trajectory moves away uh, from nation states to all greater, towards greater unions in this regard would read um, Cohn's work as um, sort of duh, a little bit obvious, stating the obvious. Yeah, you know, you look at it twenty sixteen. Um, yeah, it doesn't yeah. look uh, quite like that. So maybe, maybe I, you know, I don't want to put the question, but I'm wondering if maybe that is a good point to talk about what we can learn from him and his yeah, that. and the way that um, that um, he was remembered and the way that at least I think he could be remembered. Uh, what we can learn from him.
0: Yeah, well, I mentioned at the beginning I was gonna. There's a review that you sent me, and at the end of this review, the reviewer, whom shall not be mentioned, yeah. uh, says some rather unkind things it's about it's Cohen. It's a positive review. It's a very positive. No, it says it's a great book, but right at the end, it has this tremendous disjuncture. It just turns, and it says, uh, uh, "You know, it is in the end impossible to see what Cohen has to contribute to ongoing reconsiderations of Zionism." Uh, that we aren't uh, regularly hearing from other uncompromising opponents of ethnic nationalism and defenders of the wholly impractical idea of a binational Jewish Arab state. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You know,
1: I, I, um, I think I addressed in the book some of uh, of, um, those questions because of course when you write a biography you also want to address the question of how the person is received in his lifetime and afterwards and I feel that one of the greater challenges that uh, I had to deal with is the question of Cohn's legacy and I think there's so much sort of cherry picking in how Cohn is remembered and how Cohn is forgotten because I think the reviewer's point was it's time we forget this guy yeah it is That, that is the point uh, so I think, you know, there's, uh on the one hand, you know, there's largely a consensus about the important is important as a pioneer of the academic study of nationalism. Uh, but I think it was Kohn's political commitment that have determined and polarized the manner in which uh, his intellectual and ethical legacy uh, is presented. And the key moments in this regard are his defiance of political Zionism. We talked about it a lot. Right. As defines of, of political Zionism and later his, of, of the state of Israel, because he doesn't let go also uh, after 48, indeed, throughout his life. And on the other hand, his Cold War service on behalf of soft power used by the U.S. and NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, now, both of these actions attracted both admirers as well as detractors. You know? So you have one camp then. That so his theory of nationalism is nothing more than apology um, of colonialism that would be Soviet uh, scholars of nationalism at the time, uh, or as self-congratulatory Western demonization of Eastern European um, nationalism that is sort of more uh, versions of the new left. <clears throat> Another camp, however, would celebrate him as a model, almost sort of Cassandra-like prophet. Of progressive self-critique, those would be people who are um, critics of um, of Zionism or the State of Israel and see in him um, a, a man who spoke, the truth to power. And it is uh, for these reasons that people wanted to either remember him or forget him. I think those are the two um, crucial moments. Now, needless to say, each of these camps is familiar only with uh, one aspect of Corn And the portrait that, that I've presented is, I hope, somewhat fuller one containing inattentions and also theoretical irresolvability. Uh, I think it is um, more indicative of the struggle that we all have in coming to terms, uh, not only with our nationalism or the nationalism of the other, but with nationalism as such. Uh, many of us may want to wish it away But the fact is uh, that the last couple of years have once again redefined the significance and role of nationalism in much of the world and perhaps most tangibly
0: in the West. So you know, you, well, I think I think that's the story of his, you know, if there's a takeaway, and you know, one hates to simplify things like this, but I, I think he wanted to wish away nationalism his whole life, and he was hoping that it would just go away, but every place he went, it was just there, and it emerged right. in forms that he hadn't anticipated, and Lord knows, as we just said, that's that's happened in our, that's happened in the last 10 years in the United States, yeah. <laughs> who anticipated this, I didn't.
1: <laughs> right, no, no, so, I mean, the magnitude of events, like, you know, the reaction to the great death, Greek debt crisis, the, the, right, the European yeah. Action, the refugee crisis, the Brexit vote, uh, the uh, Trump campaign. Um, so, yeah, I mean, no, nobody I would
0: anticipate these things. Right?
1: So, so. I, you know, I have a few quotes that I want to sort of mention in this regard. Do that shortly before uh, leaving office, President Obama warned, and I quote: "Against the rise of the crude sort of nationalism or ethnic identity or tribalism that is built around an us and a them." and French President uh, Emmanuel Macron used very similar juxtaposition in presenting himself, quote, as the president of the patriots against the threat of nationalists. And just last week, you know, Republican um, Senator John um, McCain warned against the rise of that. Again, half-baked, spurious nationalism. And just a week ago, President George W. Bush warned against the resurgent ethno-nationalism and stated, and I quote again, we've seen nationalism distorted into nativism, forgot, uh, forgotten the dynamism that immigration has always brought to America and added our identity as a nation unlike many other nations is not determined by geography or ethnicity by soul or blood, and with this of course he related to Charlottesville. I mean, I think all of those statements indicate to me not just a return to Cohen's understanding of nationalism, but to the very challenges and anxieties that generated his lifelong struggle with nationalism.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, the positive side of this is that we have people like Cohen to remind us of these things. That, you know, the, and then the, the, the challenging part is that this is not just going to go away. It, it, it just comes back like a bad penny. You know, it just does not go away. And, uh, you really have to, you know, wishing it away, uh, in some theoretical sense, um, by calling it an imagined community or something, it just isn't going to work. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's going to always come back. And, uh, and, and his life is sort of a testament to that. Um, yeah. I, I loved your book. I thought it was great. And I think that Thank more people should you. read about this guy. What is it? Let me ask you this. I know we are well over time, but, um, does anybody remember Hans Cohen in Israel today? Is he like? Is there, is there, any, is there a Hans Cohen Institute or a Hans Cohen, I don't know, chair of history? Or is there anything that is, you know?
1: Not really. I would not say that, uh, you know, Hans Cohen is necessarily seen in very negative light in Israel nowadays. I think um, uh, academic discourse has moved uh, past that. So there are definitely um, scholars and definitely not the only Israeli uh, who's interested in Hans Cohen. Uh, and the, you know, the vistas that he opens uh, to the history of Israel, or the history of Zionism. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but definitely there isn't any uh, Hans Korn institution, uh, Institute uh, uh, in Israel. He himself, of course, you know, never um, made his peace with Israel, even though much of his family was there, many of his closest friends uh, remained there, but he would never even set... Uh, foot on on Israel's yeah. uh, soil after 1934, and this is the man who visited. Uh, you yeah.
0: know no, in he traveled 60s,
1: Egypt yeah. and Syria and Lebanon and all of the, uh, <laughs> the entire region. who would, would definitely not go to Israel. So obviously, yeah. there is uh, both by um, a biogra- uh, it's, it's, uh, resentment of Israel in him that is both uh, grounded in biography and in political ideology. Yeah um there is a growing interest in, in 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 kohn's writing in i would say the last um um ten years um- er, you know around the world there was a republication of the AD of nationalism um i think more than half a century after it was originally um published but who knows maybe now the new calamities that history yeah
0: has- i don't know if- no, no, no. to generate well, let me, a great
1: no. renaissance of, uh, of
0: Hans Korn scholarship. Well, let me ask you the traditional final question. We're well over time, but this is too interesting, and I could talk about this forever. Um, uh, Adi, what are you working on now? What is your next project or current project?
1: All right, I will be really brief regarding this. I am working now on um, German right-wing interwar intellectuals who call themselves the conservative revolutionaries. Um, and specifically I'm looking at five different groups of, um, scholars, um, who identified as conservative revolutionaries. I'm looking at the ways in which they, um, theorized, um, Jewish difference, what they called Jewish difference, how the Jews are different. Mm. Uh, and I think there was a certain lesson that they wanted to, um, draw from, um, the Jewish sense of distinctiveness into the German settings, you know, all hostilities and animosities uh, aside. So that is it in a nutshell. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, that sounds good, and we'll have you on the show when it's done, okay?
1: Thanks so much, Marshall. Okay, well,
0: let me say say we've been talking to uh, Adi Gordon today about his terrific book, Toward Nationalism's End, an intellectual biography of the great Hans Cohen. So, Adi, let me thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. And uh, let me say thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast. Uh, My name is Marshall Poe, and I'm the uh, editor of the New Books Network, and we really appreciate you listening to all of our podcasts and look forward to publishing more of them for you. So I hope you have a great week.